You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Karen Tumulty, a columnist and deputy opinion editor here at The Post. And today we are joined by my colleague and fellow deputy opinion editor and columnist, David Von Draley, who is the author of a delightful brand new book and instant bestseller, The Book of Charlie. Welcome, David, and congratulations. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for uh, having me on and talking to me about, about this book. Well, as you as you say in the subtitle of the book, it is about the remarkable American life of a 109-year-old man. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about your own move from Washington, D.C. to Kansas City, Missouri, and how you actually met your neighbor, Charlie? Well, this is back in 2007, and uh, my wife Karen and I uh, had four young kids at that time. The oldest was nine, the youngest was uh, four. And we uh, began, life might be a little bit easier for us if we were back in the middle of the country after having lived for 25 years on the East Coast. Uh, we moved to my wife's hometown of Kansas City, uh, bought a home in the suburbs, and we had a house full of moving boxes in August of that year. And I remember going outside to pick up the Sunday newspaper. It was a heat wave, blindingly hot at eight in the morning. And halfway down my driveway, I looked up and saw across the street, my new neighbor. He was wearing just a pair of swim trunks. He looked quite muscular and stylish with his uh, white hair flopping over his eye as he was washing his girlfriend's car uh, on Sunday morning. Um, what was unusual about this as he waved and hollered at me was that Charlie had just turned 102 years old. Uh, I thought to myself immediately, this is somebody I need to get to know. Yes, and, and we we just saw that girlfriend, a vivacious blonde, who we learn a lot more about in the book. Um, one of the things you note is the sort of moment in history that Charlie was born. Uh, you quote the historian Henry Adams as saying, it was the moment at which history's neck was broken by the sudden eruption of forces totally new. And it's really one of the great themes of the book. Could you talk a little bit about what all was changing throughout Charlie's life and the many things that he had to adapt to to thrive? Absolutely. Uh, the, the reason I wrote this book was realizing that my children, those kids uh, that we moved out here to, to raise, who are now in their 20s, we're going to be living through tremendous change in the 21st century, more change than I experienced in my life. If you talk about change at the societal level, at the cultural level, I needed to go back in order to find a trailblazer for them. I'm a role model of how to deal with change and survive and thrive through disruption. Needed to get back to the beginning of the 20th century, which was the end of the agrarian age 
Most Americans still lived on farms. Uh, they got around either by walking or by riding horses or horse and buggies. Very few cars in the whole United States. There were few paved roads uh, anywhere in the country. Uh, flight happened, the, the first true aircraft flight by Wilbur Wright when Charlie was a, a little baby. Uh, there was no radio, let alone television. Uh, motion pictures were purely experimental at that time. Um, we had the world was still ruled by kings and czars and pashas uh, because those empires had not been tested by two worlds. Um, all of this change lay ahead, the, and and Charlie had to navigate it. Um, and that that I I realized as I heard his many stories. He was a great raconteur. I would go over across the street and sit in his den and listen to him talk about this life. And gradually it it, it dawned on me that this was the kind of flexible, adaptable, optimistic, upbeat, you know, uh, experimental, uh, open person. Uh, who would be, like I say, a role model for my kids as they go through uh, unpredictable the unpredictable future that faces them. Well, another thing, another theme of the book, it impressed not only me, but some of the members of our audience who have read the book, is the theme of stoicism. And I always think of stoicism, I, I guess I've thought of the word too narrowly, as sort of just kind of gritting your teeth and, and getting through it. You have a much kind of broader uh, definition of the coping skills that, that go with stoicism. Could you talk about that? For sure, for sure. I think stoicism does have a, a bad rap. It, it's considered this kind of uh, unfeeling or uh, sour, dour, um, unhappy philosophy. That's it, really the opposite of uh, what I think it, it truly means in the classical sense. The, the Stoic philosophers uh, of 2000 years ago were simply trying to help people be happy and be productive and be useful. And the, the way they did that was to sort of divide the world into the things that are under one's control, and all the things that lie beyond our control. So what's under our control? Uh, the product of our, our mind, uh, of, our, of our will, uh, our own decisions, our own actions, our own choices. These are things we can control. What's outside of our control? Everything else. The weather, other people, what the government does tomorrow, uh, whether a piano falls out of the sky and lands on your head. Um, we don't control any of those things. Uh, we can't go into the past and change it, and we don't know what the future has in store. So by focusing on the things that are in our control, the Stoics say, then we can be truly useful, productive, happy uh, people, because we're not constantly angsting over things that we can't influence. And Charlie, uh, he wasn't a philosopher. Uh, he just came to this, I think, naturally, and naturally understood that the essence of happiness and of freedom 
uh, of true freedom is this understanding that you can only focus on the things under your control. Well, that brings us to a question from our audience, from, from Joan McWilliams, from your home state of Colorado, who asked, did you ever discuss stoicism with Charlie, or did you reach your conclusion through your own observation? Um, would Charlie have called himself a stoic? You know, um, it's a great question. And, and people have asked me, what would Charlie make of this book? Uh, he didn't. He, he had no inkling that a book was going to be written about him. Uh, I didn't realize that this was a project I wanted to do until after he had passed away in 2014. And I began to reflect uh, more on this extraordinary person I had known. Um, Charlie would, I think, have loved the fact that his stories are in a book because he knew they were good stories. He would be uh, shocked at the idea that I drew a lot of philosophical lessons because he denied that he really had a philosophy of life. He used to say, well, my mother just told me, do the right thing. Um, you know, that's not the worst philosophy, actually, to just try to do the right thing in any given moment. Um, but that's a stoic uh, uh, attitude as, as well, to focus on the right thing that you can do. Um, I drew these conclusions from the example of his life, but also from some things he said. There's a story in there about an exchange he had with his youngest daughter, who uh, is a, a friend of ours as well, uh, in which she she was upset about some uh, you know neighborhood snit going on, and, and Charlie overheard a phone conversation, uh, and uh, he said to her afterward, uh, "You have to let that go. Uh, I don't have time for people like that. You can't change them, and and they'll they'll kill you. Uh, getting upset about that kind of thing. So." That, that's a very stoic response uh, to uh, to say, look, you can't control somebody else. So you can't, there's no point getting upset about them. Well, so talk a, a little bit about your writing process. I, you know, you didn't decide you were going to do this book until after Charlie was already gone. So I assume you weren't sitting there in his, li in his living room with his interestingly decorated living room, uh, taking notes. Um, so what was the process like? I, I noticed in the acknowledgments, you mentioned there were some oral histories. You obviously relied on uh, his relatives. Your wife, Karen Ball, a very accomplished journalist, uh, uncovered, uncovered some clues that you didn't even know were there. Could you talk about all of that and sort of bringing everything together? It was, um, uh, you're right about my Karen, Karen Ball. Uh, she's one of the best reporters I've ever known. And when she decides she's going to find something out, she finds it out. And she was able to discover things about Charlie's life that even his own family didn't know. Uh, so that was huge help. Um, I was tremendously assisted by the fact that his family had uh, arranged for him to do a professional 
uh, oral history where he was interviewed by a very skilled interviewer over the course of three hours. There's nothing in those tapes that I didn't hear from him. Uh, there's nothing in those tapes that I hadn't heard from him personally, uh, but it was useful to uh, have them recorded uh, uh, as well. And uh, then I, you know, had a, a, a wonderful sort of uh, education in the 20th century. There were all sorts of uh, little side roads that I was able to go down and explore the, the, the medical history, history of medical advances, of automobile travel in the United States. I love uh, history and finding these kinds of stories was a was a swell time. Uh, and then the challenge was to find a, a pace and a um, a tempo for the book that would um, make it, uh, you know, uh, accessible because uh, it, it's not a conventional biography. And Charlie was probably not a person who would have merited, you know, a, a, a full dress biography. Uh, he 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 was a pioneer in anesthesiology in Kansas City and nationally, but he didn't invent any of the techniques. Um, so figuring out how to do the book. Uh, as a guidebook uh, uh, for people in search of uh, some peace and tranquility in a divisive and turbulent time uh, without having it uh, bogged down. That was the real writing challenge. Well, and, and Charlie's 109 years were not without trauma and grief and loss. There is the horrific elevator accident that takes his father when he is a very young boy. Um, there, there is hints or hints that he, you know, the, there was sexual abuse at the summer camp that he went to. Uh, he loses his first wife when she kills himself. His second marriage is very brief. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and sort of the degree to which those sorts of things left their imprint on Charlie and his ability to, in some ways, you know, relate to people and to sort of mm -hmm. chart his own life. Sure, absolutely. I mean, the 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 mistake that we, I think so many of us make is to think that happy people have not been through difficulty. Um, and, and oh, well, it's easy for them to be happy, easy for them to be well-adjusted because they didn't have X, Y, or Z happen to them. I think as we go on through life, Karen, I'm sure you feel this way. I know I do. We learn that everybody's got stuff in their lives. Uh, there's nobody who gets out of here unscathed in one way or another. And so it's important in this book to understand Charlie's pains and failures and tragedies as much as his uh, hijinks and adventures 
and uh, and 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 joys and successes because uh, he they were all a part of his story. Um, and it, the question is, how do you deal with those traumas? Uh, how do how do you go on to be happy in a world where you know that somebody as close to you as your father could be snatched away from you uh, in an instant? Uh, that's a lesson Charlie learned when he was eight years old. Uh, and that's where that stoicism comes in, to realize that uh, we don't control that. And that can be positive because it can make us live more in the moment and take the joy that exists right now because we don't know uh, what's around the corner. Um, it can make us alive to wonder and joy and uh, you know these things that uh, we know were were very important to Charlie. Uh, and he, he he became very much a person in the present moment, a very kind of uh, to get away from the Western classics. He was a very Zen individual um, and understood that uh, idea of living in the now uh, that is, I think, so important to a happy life. Well, then, of course, there is the sort of corollary for people who win the genetic lottery and live a long life, uh, the genetic and lottery of fate and live a long life, which is that, you know, you are going to outlive a lot of people that you are close to, which brings us to another question from our audience, Gary Merritt from Virginia, who asked, what advice would the ultra elderly likely give for best dealing with cumulative grief over the loss of every living relative, friend and colleague from one's childhood through late middle age? Just keep on making new friends? That's a great question. And, uh... I, I've had two great teachers in this regard, Charlie and my mother, who lived to be 90, not nearly as long as Charlie, but a long life. And from both of them, I learned that you have to keep making friends uh, because in Charlie's case, he didn't just outlive his his peers. He, he outlived most of the people 20 years younger than him. But look what he was doing at age 104, 105, 106. He was sitting with me, 50 years younger than him, making a new friend. Um, and he had a lot of friends. I, I keep meeting people around Kansas City now that the book is out who have Charlie's stories. He, he, that's, that's the only choice. And what does that cumulative grief teach you? It teaches you that, uh, as Marcus Aurelius, uh, one of the great Stoics, observed, you know, um, the uh, the end can can be any moment for any one of us. And again, this it, it, it that should encourage us to treasure the moments we have to 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 squeeze the happiness out of the right now, to to be useful to other people, to love intensely, to try to do acts of kindness, whatever it is, to brighten up uh, our time because we don't know how long it's going to last. And that lesson becomes more and more clear to people as they get older and older. Well, I must say one thing as I was reading the book that occasionally uh, had me cringe was 
your descriptions of medicine and how it changed over the course of Charlie's life. Essentially, you said when he became a doctor, the truth was doctors didn't even cure people. Uh, and he is a pioneer in the field of anesthesiology. Um, could you talk, and again, these are all things that are discovered over the course of his professional life, uh, in some ways were brought to us because of wars and mm. the necessity of, of saving troops. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? It was just such an eye-opener for me. It's uh, so the most famous doctor in this part of the world uh, it, when Charlie was coming up was a guy named Arthur Herzler. Uh, he was trained in in Germany by the greatest doctors in the world. And in his memoir, it hit me uh, because I was reading it and he said, the thing was, we couldn't cure anything. Uh, we uh, a doctor's stock and trade uh, before. Uh, World War II was to uh, was what they called the bedside manner, uh, the ability to go into a home and uh, give you know hope and or if the case was hopeless, to be able to prepare the family a little bit for what was coming. But they didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have uh, advanced surgical techniques. Uh, I I went through Charlie's. Uh, college, uh, uh, you know, notebook where he wrote down what he was taught to treat basically every disease, and it's just crazy stuff. Um, the, you, so then along comes World War II, and penicillin is put on the uh, fast track for development, and you know, doctors learn how to do. Uh, uh, thoracic surgery using endotracheal tubes and IV anesthetics come along. And all of this happens in about five years. Uh, the effect on the medical community was a lot like what you and I have gone through in journalism over the past 10 or 15 years. Great. We have lost the connection with David. So I apologize, but we did have an absolutely wonderful discussion. And um, I want to thank David uh, for joining us today and also uh, to remind you that you should check out what interviews we have coming up. Just please head over to WashingtonPostLive.com to find out more information about all of our upcoming programs. I'm Karen Tumulty. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.